Hey there, and welcome to the Main Question Podcast, where we dive into the research and creative projects and the researchers and faculty members from the University of Maine who are looking at the issues and challenges of our times. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. Words like pivot, unprecedented, or phrases like systemic change have received a pretty good workout in the year 2020. The coronavirus pandemic and everything else going on this year have made these words quite common these days. And nowhere are those words more applicable, it seems, than they are in the world of education, including higher education. COVID-19 forced teachers and schools at all levels to pivot, there's that word again, or turn on a dime this past March, sending everybody home for the spring. In reality, the pandemic kicked into gear several trends that were well underway. Online education, remote or distance learning are either totally, or at least partially, part of everybody's educational process these days, from pre-K through PhD. The classic in-class experience has been part of education for hundreds of years. And while it hasn't gone away, online tools from Zoom to pre-produced videos, animations, and dozens of other technologies are now pretty commonplace. What advantages do these tools offer? How are they making education more effective or accessible? And what does this all mean for the future of education? We talked about this and more with Peter Schilling, the Executive Director of Innovation in Teaching and Learning at UMaine. His center helps UMaine faculty take their courses online, or at least add the latest technology to the way they teach their subject. Per usual these days, and appropriate for the subject matter at hand, we did our interview remotely and talked about these trends that are changing the way education is delivered. Well, Peter, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. And this is certainly a a topic that is on a lot of people's minds. Let's start here. Uh, Remote learning and education has has been a growing trend with the pandemic or without the pandemic. Has this been sort of an accelerant that is speeding up trends that were already underway? Yeah, absolutely. It's been an accelerant Um, and uh, in some ways a a good one and in some ways uh, less than positive. And, you know, one of the the distinctions I would make is what we all tried to do in March, April, May, um, in terms of converting to remote. That is a really different enterprise uh, for faculty, for students, than developing a purpose-built online course or hybrid course over the course of, you know, could be six months to a year. And then similarly, students having elected that that was the best or most convenient or the, the modality that they needed they needed uh, at that time. So it's a little bit problematic to conflate what we're all just going through now uh, and have for the last five months with you know trends that really started with the railroad. You've been overseeing innovations and, and differences and, and new things in teaching and learning for a long time. So what were some of the, some of the differences in March, April, and May? Faculty members and K through 12, everybody was caught a little flat-footed and had to sort of scramble to catch up. What are some of the major differences you would point to versus sort of a thoughtful, planned-out online education? In you know mid-March, uh, faculty uh, had to do this quick pivot, and they had to um, discover the tools that were immediately available to them, and hopefully they had they knew how to use already. They had to assess sort of things like scheduling. Um, you know, would would they be able to hold the same class schedule? Um, or with students now off campus and no longer have their campus jobs, but trying to find local jobs where they were, were the students on a different schedule? Um, so just as, you know, even at that level of trying to, to understand it. 
they also uh, had to take the the assignments, the the readings, the other engagement activities that they had based on everyone being in the same place at a particular time and quickly convert that. And really what they tended to do is, uh, rep and everybody did this, is, is replicate what their face-to-face -face course was with the with the tools, online tools. And the contrast is uh, when we work with faculty developing an, an online course, we think about what is the best tool for a particular assignment or a particular activity or your curriculum and not <laughs> what do we have that we can reach from where we're sitting right now. Um, and so, for example, some of the online courses that we've built, or I've built both at, at UMaine and elsewhere, really tries to say, what critical advantage do we have in this course, will students have in this course, if we uh, think about them from the beginning as being geographically distributed over um, a region, the globe, etc. Um, and that can lead you into some really fascinating assignments that helps students sort of understand sort of global local issues. And none of that was really possible when we made this sort of emergency pivot. Maybe let's talk about some of those tools and then some of the terms. And I know some of these are probably outdated. So maybe you can educate us on, on what the, the latest thinking is on tools and, and terminology. Everybody's heard of online education. There's remote learning. There's uh, synchronous versus asynchronous, hybrid. How do we talk about what's going on in this, in this sphere right now? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, it's changed over time. So uh, even even in the, the five years that I've been at, at the University of Maine, uh, when I got here, online meant uh, asynchronous, um, which at my pre previous institution, it didn't mean that. And so it was this interesting uh, wake-up call for me. If we think about the actual practice, so a, sort of a little separate from the labels that we apply to them, almost every course has an asynchronous online component to it. It's uh, sh it's reading, even if, you know, pre-technology, if you're just reading a book, you're engaging in your course in an asynchronous modality. Today, we have learning management systems in which we uh, share reading, share videos, share um, uh, a range of assignments, asynchronous discuss threaded discussions, you know, a number of different resources available. And we use those in face-to-face -face courses as well as online courses. And in fact, when we look at the log files for our learning management system, there's not a big difference between on, for all courses if we uh, between those that are 100% online and 100% face-to-face, um, because in essence, none of them are 100% are anything. They all sort of live on the spectrum. Um, and one really sort of easy way of thinking about this, if, if you will, is uh, in the last, say, 15 years, Copyright law went from say, went from this distinction between online courses and face-to-face -face courses in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, but that immediately uh, raised problems such that the the U.S. government had to come up with the um, the Teach Act, which doesn't use the term online or face-to-face. -face. They use the term digitally mediated instruction as sort of this middle ground. And so, in some ways, I think it would help us to think about digitally mediated instruction because it's almost always that today. What is the research and, and your experience shown about how and when online education is better or more effective than face-to-face -face learning, and, and where does it fall short? I like the way you asked the question, because you didn't say online courses versus face-to-face -face courses, because they're components of all courses that can be done very effectively online 
and others that are really hard to do online and vice versa. One way to think about it is that global local distribution that I talked about. So online courses make it easy, can make it easier to collect, to have students sort of working with data, collecting it locally, sharing it, seeing its impact across um, uh, regions. So for example, uh, we've talked with a marine science faculty member this spring, summer, about having his online students collect water samples from where they are and then share them in a map interface and do you know visualization and presentations based on the geographic geographical distribution of aspects of the, the water that they're sampling. That would be hard to do if they're all in the same location, right? You would all go out to the same creek or water source and you know, uh, likely your samples wouldn't be that different. Um, now that instructor could bring in other resources, but it's a little different when the students are collecting them themselves um, because the, the, the process of working through the data and thinking about it and, and realizing that it's messy and cleaning it is much more important than, than giving students sort of this clean data set that, that proves the, the point of the instructor. So things like that you can do very effectively online. You can also, again, when you're thinking about it, the courses online from the outset, think about who other than yourself as the instructor you can bring into the course. So for example, we had a business faculty member who was teaching a winter term course a couple of years ago, and he knew he would be traveling in Indonesia. So he set up interviews with contacts he had in the, in the region, um, and he did those via Zoom, he recorded them, and so his students actually, even though they were hugely uh, scattered across uh, locations, they actually had access to people that, if he had only thought about his classroom meeting in a time and place, he probably wouldn't have brought in. Um, and so part of what the online does is, is it helps us pause and think about those things that we may have accepted as the boundaries or the containers in which we uh, teach. So time and place, those are options that we don't have to bound ourselves by. On the other hand, and I'm, I'm thinking of the new engineering building and how it, it's sort of uh, going to be outfitted and, and the, the ground floor, half of the building is going to be uh, these amazing workshops where students are going to get hands-on work, you know, hands-on experience with all these amazing tools in lab settings, really flexible. They can have interdisciplinary capstone groups, so you can have your biomedical and your mechanical engineer all sort of working together, you know, step into a shop to solder something, come back, work with the biomedical and, and, you know, the resources that you can't send through the mail. And that kind of layout is an access to those resources you can't replicate online. Part of it is, is thinking about and being deliberate about what you have uh, to work with and what the students need to, to really master the discipline. You mentioned several subjects or disciplines. Maybe let's talk about uh, how online education plays into them. Setting up a business course or a psychology course is much different from, uh, as you mentioned, an engineering course or teaching a music course or dance. There's a lot of uh, different ways you have to attack depending on the, on the subject at hand, right? Uh, absolutely. That's, uh, and that's the role um, of the instructional designers. So within uh, at the University of Maine, we have a Center for Innovation and Teaching and Learning. And in that group, we have five instructional designers who come together with faculty member um, and sort of uh, storyboard out uh, the learning objectives of their course and think about what are the best ways of delivering it, what are the best technologies that are available to you, uh, what kind of assignments would you give students, 
Um, and if there are limitations because the course has to, the students are all remote, how are we going to address that? What can they do? Um, what can they find locally to do? So for example, I was um, meeting with a group that was talking about teaching students about historical archives. And the, the modality had been, uh, when it was face-to-face, -face, is, is the instructor had sort of particular relationships with libraries and other archives and would bring them there. And it was it was great. You know, they got hands-on experience with this. But it was also pretty much of a known quantity. Um, and she's now thinking of shifting and having students uh, identify local resources where they are when they're, if they need to be remote and bringing in a lot of different types of perspectives. And so I, I, I use that term a couple times so far, the local global connection. What happens in, in that scenario is, is students will start working with something local and they understand what that means. So be it water samples to street art to pol political science, what have you. And they work with something local and they don't know sort of what is common sort of across different regions or what is specific to their locality. And so when you get them in an archive, understanding, oh, this thing that I've just learned about my local archive is very specific, but this one is, is actually common to many. And, and learning that, that distinction in a real hands-on way can be powerful. Is the model of education that many of us grew up with, a teacher lecturing, passively sitting there, rote memorization, is that becoming a thing of the past? Well, yeah, so the, the term lecture actually comes from uh, the verb to read. And so if we think about when uh, uh, access to books was uh, challenging. Um, and so, right, universities grew up around libraries because that's where the books were. But even then, there weren't paper packs and not until the, the 1920s, 30s. And so, the, the, so what the original lecturers was the person who had access to the books reading to the people in the audience. Um, we have access to books. We have access to, to more resources than we, than we used to. So that's that it. I, answering your question, the, the, the more passive lecture mode has its place, I would think. It can be an effective strategy. The best lecturers are really engaging in students, getting them to answer and, and think about things and, and not talking at them 100%. But I will offer, there was this great study that came out uh, last fall, and I, for, I forget what university it was, um, but it, I can find it easily, where um, the comparison was between sort of the, the charismatic lecture uh, versus students in, a, in what we call an active learning classroom where there is no lecture, um, the students read or watch the, the short videos ahead of time and when they come together, they work out on problems, they have discussions, those kinds of things. So the, the students in the lecture of the, with a charismatic speaker, instructor, enjoyed the course more than the students in the active learning and thought they had learned more than the students in the active learning, but uh, they were given the same assessments and the students in the active learning class uh, learned demonstrably more than the students in the lecture class, even though they liked it less. And in part, it was harder work. Um, they had to work to make memories. They had to uh, use the, the information they, in, that the instructor provided them to solve problems instead of to you know taking notes and being able to summarize it. The old model of students all of the same age, theoretically progressing at the same rate, is that changing as well? Is it more individualized now in terms of if a student might be younger might, but might be more uh, able to, to absorb a certain subject, they might move ahead quicker even though they're not in the same age group? 
so if we think about that, um, so what's sort of the, we went from, you know, the differentiated instruction of the one-room schoolhouse, right, in which you had all different ages in the same room, and they, they learned at their own rate, to getting into the latter part of the 19th and into the 20th century, and the, you know, industrial era with what is known as Taylorism, or the assembly line. And then we started treating our students and our subjects as assembly lines. And then we, we came up with this concept of a credit hour, which was originally about getting insurance for high school teachers. And the, the uh, folks at the uh, Carnegie Institute that developed the credit hour pleaded, no one please ever use this as a, a marker of student learning. So of course that's what we do. Three credit course means a certain thing, a four credit course means a, a particular hours of engagement with students, but that's never been the case. And so now what we're shifting out of the, that industrial era of assembly line is especially with the technology available to us, we can have adaptive materials. So, you know, based on how, you know, you do on a particular assessment, given your background and interests and the way you learn best, you might travel through course material in, in a particular sequence and, and rate versus me who may have a, a different uh, interest, proclivity, etc. We'll go through it. Now, those are expensive to put together and sort of the, the smaller steps reaching them, and many, many faculty now do this, is in their learning management system, they may say, you know, if you're just starting to use geographic information systems and these are new to you, I've added some uh, background material into the course shell that you can go into if you need to, to catch up. I'm not going to cover that in the class, but if you have any questions, be get in touch. And those students who just came out of a GIS class don't have to repeat that work. They can just skip to the, the, the particular project or assignment. And so we're starting to see sort of that differentiation come in uh, even more. You mentioned the CITL. Uh, we all have these acronyms we need to learn. So that is the Center for Innovation and Teaching and Learning, which is at the University of Maine. Maybe you could describe what they do and, and what the state of online education at UMaine is in general. How, how big an enterprise? Where are we sort of uh, leading the way or riding the cutting edge? How many faculty members are using the CITL and, and how many of them are adapting their courses to this new way of uh, thinking? CITL, um, Center for Innovation of Teaching and Learning, does about five things. Uh, I mentioned the instructional design and the work with, and this is usually one-on-one, -on -one, developing a course uh, and thinking about the course in the context of contemporary technology as well as current research on learning uh, and really getting into cognitive psychology and, and neuropsychology and understanding sort of how memories get made and, and what information overload looks like and all of that kind of thing. The second area is we have a, a group that focuses on the professional development for our, our faculty, both part-time and face-to-face. -face. I'm sorry, part-time and full-time. And there, there the training is in similar areas, uh, trends in pedagogy, trends in, in um, uh, doing, for example, effective uh, group work in a diverse class that's online. Uh, then we have a group that does uh, faculty tech support um, so that, you know, faculty don't have to worry that, okay, I'm going to experiment with this new uh, digital tool, but I'm on my own once I start using this and I'm going to get stuck in front of a class of X number of hundred students not knowing what to do. So we have a, a group that really just does tech support for faculty. We have a, a, what at the University of Maine we call a hackerspace, which um, I use hacker uh, to mean uh, uh, those who tinker with things, not those who break and enter and steal data. 
Um, and so the hackerspace seeks to provide both faculty and students with ready access to um, relatively inexpensive but new classes of technology from drones to uh, really inexpensive microprocessors to array of sensors to 3D printing. The idea is that students have access to a whole new set of tools and services that will change the questions that they can ask as well as the answers that they should come up with. Uh, and I'll give a really simple, simple example of the hackerspace. Um, and I had nothing to do with this, but I used it to try and to convince the, the university to, to fund it. And that is um, a number of years ago, a faculty member was doing research on the migration of orcas uh, in the Atlantic. You know, they did what you would expect. They got their grad students and put them into little rubber boats with giant hypodermic needles. And every couple of days they would chase down the pot of orcas and they'd stick them with them, freaking everybody out, orcas included. And I'm sure it was a grad student who, you know, in a moment of panic or insight, sort of thought, we have drones, we have duct tape, and we have sponges. We don't have to do it this way. And they duct taped sponges to the drones and they flew them through the orca's spouts and they were getting better DNA samples uh, than they had ever before gotten. So the idea with the hackerspace is sort of how do we make similar resources available to our business students, to our French majors, to our, you know, classicists, et cetera. Uh, and then the very last thing that we do um, is we help the institution from IT to facilities think about the services uh, and, um, and the systems that uh, we support for faculty uh, in the context of current uh, theories of teaching and research and teaching and current technology. And so this comes to like, how is a classroom designed? instead of continuing to do 19th century tailor-based designs in which students move through in an assembly line, should classrooms have a, a different pedagogical theory behind them? Um, and so that's where we get into our active learning classrooms, utilizing video conferencing or web conferencing in classrooms. So those are the five things. How big an enterprise? How, how many faculty members are, are using CITL? We'll have, you know, in the neighborhood of uh, up to about 150 to 200 year doing the instructional design side, uh, virtually all faculty contacting the tech support side. On the professional development side, we're also up into the the two or 300, though this year it's, it's much higher because we're migrating to a new learning management system. People's attention spans seem to be shrinking. That social media may be part of that. Uh, is that borne out in research. What does that mean in terms of how people learn more effectively? Are shorter videos more effective? Uh, has shorter attention spans meant that learning and teaching has to change? This research on a, a attention span uh, was sort of made popular by a Harvard physicist named Eric Mazur. Um, and what he found, he, he basically put EEGs on students in an lecture hall, and he found that every seven minutes or so, um, the students sort of drifted away um, they came back, um, but they might have lost a couple minutes in there. And so his research, and it, this has been borne out, um, was really started face-to-face uh, -face in, in, I want to say, the uh, late 80s, early 90s. As we create more and more content online, uh, we can actually, we don't need the EEGs in quite the same way. We can watch log files and see how students are engaging in, in particular, in, in video content. And it, it really uh, uh, follows up what Mazur found. 
Missouri and many others, and that is, you know, an optimal time frame is in is around seven minutes, plus or minus a little bit. Um, and if you don't, if, if you do consistently longer videos over the course of a semester, the students will watch less and less. And so they might start off at the beginning of the semester watching quite a bit, but as the semester progresses, they'll watch little. There's also a difference between adult students, say in a, in a certificate or a master's program, or continuing getting continuing ed credits versus a, a an eighteen year old first year undergrad, and the difference is the the more the more mature students are, are often coming back to to fill gaps in their learning, and we'll watch them come back in and say, okay, this is what I don't know. I'm going to go watch that video, or I'm going to do this reading, and for, as often as not, then they realize. Okay, there is there is earlier material. I, I guess I don't know either. And so they'll go backwards. They'll jump around. They end up actually consuming the same amount of content as the the typical undergrads who will come along for the ride beginning to end. Another sort of sea change is the fact that on everybody's phone, they basically have all the facts and data that has ever been created, really. So how does that change how folks learn? Uh, is it more about applying that knowledge to a problem or challenge instead of just memorizing facts or looking up facts or memorizing dates and such? Yeah, that's exactly right. Our phones and Google are an adjunct to our brains these days. And, you know, so let's accept that and think about um, assessments that are relevant and immediate to the, the students. And so we work a lot with faculty to help them develop uh, embedded formative assessments where students can see the relevance of everything that they're learning and how to, I don't want to say just simply apply it, um, because it's not always about applied discipline. So, you know, the, the folks who are studying Shakespeare are not looking to apply um, Shakespeare to their life right then, but they are sort of learning how to unpack uh, complicated social psychological situations and understand, you know, interpersonal dynamics and things like that, as well as the literary craft. And so helping them uh, engage, uh, and this it, it ties a number of things together here in that the, these, these exams that we've become familiar with, the, the huge multiple choice or the you have a midterm, uh, a midterm and a final, maybe three exams in the year, and these, these big anxiety-producing assessments that ultimately don't demonstrate a lot about the student's ability to utilize the information that they've gathered and the skills that they've gathered in a class in life. And so I have the theory that students have come to respect our exams much less and less because they don't understand how they actually demonstrate and will help them uh, succeed in, their, in that field. And sometimes the, the larger classes uh, that we're teaching have forced us into exams because the, just the time the faculty has to, to give individual attention is to, to an assessment. Um, and this is where that differentiated learning, the adaptive um, learning can actually help because it, it allows us to um, be more personal with students at scale, uh, which is obviously one of the major challenges that a university has. How disruptive are all these trends in higher education as we've come to know it? Uh, are we gonna see less need for large lecture halls, infrastructure buildings, and are there gonna be some institutions that won't be able to adapt to some of these changes? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the higher ed sector has already been, um, because of the, the demographics, the, the number of, of high school students coming out, so that the higher ed has already been sort of challenged there. 
And then the other challenge that higher ed has is, and we're like medicine in, in this regard, in that um, there are certain things that we can do at scale, like uh, disseminate a video of a, of a seven minute video of, of a micro lecture, things like that. We can do that to, to many students. But when it comes to having a student work in, in our new engineering building on um, you know, a complex uh, machining tool in a lab, that's not something that we can really scale to a large number. That the, the students still need individualized instruction to learn how to use this, these pieces of equipment. And the same is through in chemistry and biology and many other areas that the students need hands-on uh, supervised uh, training to, to work with some of these skills. And so higher education is looking more and more expensive, uh, you know, say in contrast to, you know, what it used to cost to, to send a letter versus what it costs to send an email today. A, a very small fraction of a penny to 40 cents, you know. And if we think about other areas that have gotten able to um, get less expensive at scale, it looks like higher ed is getting more and more expensive, where we're really not. Um, there's a, a great example that, that NPR had in the fall on this scenario, is that the cost of a, a, a music quartet uh, doing a performance at an event 200 years ago was you had the four players, you know, come and play their music with their instruments. So what is the cost today? You know, there's no economies of scale. They still need to get to the event. They still need their four of them, and they still need their instruments. So... The, having the quartet at your event now looks like it was a lot more expensive than it was 200 years ago. Um, but that's because everything else has changed. The quartet hasn't. So higher ed is, has already been looking more and more expensive, especially as, as states sort of reduce their spending in higher ed um, and leave it to the individual families to cover. Um, so we have demographic, demographics. We already have a strained economic trends. And now we get into to COVID and the need to do more remote um, and, you know, accommodate sort of another set of issues. So that is, as you used the term earlier on, sort of an accelerant to this whole process. Um, we are going faster, but I, my real worry, to be honest, is some of what we, we quickly pivoted to in the spring is going to um, lead to people feeling, yeah, well, that was good enough. Um, which my worry is that that's going to be a race to the bottom. And what is the least expensive way in which we can say we are providing education? And, you know, where that leads. And, and I see this, not at the University of Maine, but some other institutions. This, when you hear people refer to students as customers, if, if the customer is buying their education, that can sometimes lead is to their buying the, uh, the grade they're buying the, 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 the diploma as opposed to engaging and learning, which is a much more complicated thing than purchasing. So finally, we like to ask this question of everybody we have on our, our podcast. And certainly uh, there's so much here that, that we've talked about. We could probably do a series on this, but maybe we'll come back to it at some point. But if you could look out five to 10 years, what do you think higher education is going to look like? And will those changes uh, be mirrored in K through 12? What do you hope to see? We asked just that question. Um, I was part of the building community for that new engineering building. And so part of uh, what we were doing there is thinking how, how to build a building, right? It's a very, you know, what, $60, 70000000 million building. And how are we going to make it so that it is a relevant building 
in five or ten years, if not fifty. Um, and there is building in, um, you'll, as I mentioned, it's it's a lot of hands-on. Every classroom in that facility is an active learning classroom. There are no uh, rate auditorium style. Now, there are other auditorium style uh, classrooms in the vicinity, so we didn't need to put one in there. Um, but really the idea in that space was to be an environment where students could come in and work problems together. Uh, in addition, the, the smaller seminar style uh, classrooms in that building all are um, set up so that uh, we can have remote people coming in, so a remote instructor, an expert in the field who's in Brazil or what have you. We could have people joining the classroom from outside. And so really sort of facilitating the space of as being a really hands-on uh, environment, but also completely digitally mediated at all times. In terms of uh, K-12, to the, the, and I'm going to uh, break that into something like pre-K to four or five, where the social socialization of students is so important. Um, they're really just their brain development requires sort of a different type of interaction. Their capacity to work independently is much lower. Once you get into middle school, we can see some shifting, still needing, I mean, as middle school, they're between two things. They still need uh, uh, personal engagement, one-on-one -on -one interaction with faculty as well as work with others. So a bit of shifting in terms of what can happen in different area, different sort of grade cohorts in a in a more nuanced way. Where I think we're we're getting to is the, and this happens always when we get new technologies and and we're sort of not overwhelmed, but we've had a lot of new technologies in the last 20 years. The first thing that folks do with them is. Uh, think about the tasks that they're currently doing and use, utilize the new technologies to do that. So when we got microphones, we we're like, huh, I can talk to 40 people in my normal voice. Why don't I put 100 people in the room and get a microphone? And now it's better, right? And that sort of led us down to, you know, having giant classes with uh, high stakes exams that are multiple choice or, you know, scanned for, for correcting. But as things evolve, uh, as we start, we start utilizing the new technologies in ways that are native to them. Um, and we're just starting to get into those phases where we're utilizing the technologies not to give remote lectures, but to have students create their own videos, have faculty, you know, walk around their greenhouse uh, and create video there uh, in smaller bits. Thinking, I, I think we're just getting into this stage and maybe the, the, the COVID-19 is helping accelerate this, is to, to get technology into the hands of individual faculty in the field or in their lab or in the archive where they're working or in the, the CEO's office, um, as opposed to just build it all in the classroom. Well, there's a lot here and uh, things are gonna keep changing. I, I think that's the one thing we can certainly count on uh, going forward. Appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us. Happy to, Ron, this is fun. Great to have you along for this episode. We'd love to hear what you think about our series. Drop us a line at mainquestion at main.edu. Subscribe to our series if you're so inclined. The main question can be found at Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.